The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Anno Domini 2021 draws to a close. For many Americans, both the Democrats and corrupt Department of Justice who seize their opportunity and the country's political prisoners who languish in jail at the end of this year with no firm trial date in sight. Uh, For both groups, this year began not on January the 1st, but on January the 6th. I was on air with Tucker Carlson as the, quote, insurrection was drawing to a close. And having spent the afternoon listening to Chris Wallace et al., I took a different view. Can't stand today and I couldn't stand it then. But let's not lie about it. The people like Sandy Cortez and Chris Cuomo and the rest of these disingenuous creeps have been excusing this kind of crap for six months. Absolutely. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time in uh, Northern Ireland. That's uh, Protestants and Catholics, loyalists and Republicans. I spent time in Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina. That's Christians and Muslims. And it's always interesting to me that people are surprised when a tactic that's proved effective for one group of people is then suddenly taken up by other people of whom they don't approve. And so I've listened to all this blather for whatever it is, six or seven hours now, where people are saying, starting with the vice president down, oh, this is not who we are. Have you switched on a TV since Memorial Day? This is exactly who we are. Right. Uh, so it's okay, it's okay to burn Wendy's in Atlanta. It's okay to loot Macy's. It's okay to incinerate a precinct house in Minneapolis. It's okay to set up the Chaz Chop Autonomous Republic. Uh, but, uh, but suddenly you expect the capital of the United States, the uh, United States Congress, to be immune from this. That's completely preposterous. Uh, either we have equality before the law and a, uh, a Wendy's franchisee is entitled to have his property rights as respected as the United States Congress. I've, all, I've listened to this stuff too. D- Chad Pergram, I love, I love him and I love his reports. And he says uh, this, nothing has happened uh, since uh, the British burned down the White House in 1814. So we're supposed to take history and the majesty of the Capitol seriously now. Uh, Nancy Pelosi told us she didn't care about old statues. Mitch McConnell said he didn't care about the names of military bases. So suddenly this old building uh, is is important now. You can't have that. There's been a complete uh, collapse of equality before the law now. Uh, for ever since the COVID began, basically, there are some groups that have enjoyed the license to go out and loot and burn every night in American cities. And the more they are not subject to any laws, uh, the more onerous the burden that falls upon the law abiding so that they can't go out and open their hair salon. They can't have granny round for Christmas dinner. So we've got a completely bifurcated system uh, where the less law that applies to one group, the more micro-regulated the lives of the other group are. And at some point, that is to give. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. My, oh, my, what's been cancelled today? Plenty of old stuff and all of the fun. 
Zippity doo da, zippity dun. On Saturday, our beloved friend and colleague Kathy Shadle died. I last saw Kathy at her home a couple of weeks before Christmas. Her body was very sick, but her brain was on sparkling form. And we were talking about the glory days of the internet, the big, sprawling, decentralized blogosphere of the early years of the century, before the woke cartel of Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter wrecked it all and imposed this bloody, boring, totalitarian groupthink uh, and destroyed the whole thing. Uh, Kathy was a big force in that wild, iconoclastic age of just a decade or so back, and she said to me rather sadly that it won't even be remembered. It will be written out of history. Media chronicles of our time will just record that in the late 1990s, print newspapers declined and then were replaced by social media, one gatekeeper smoothly yielding to another more efficient gatekeeper. When we started this show in the first week of that fortnight to flatten the curve, almost a year ago, I got complaints about why we aren't on yeah, Apple Podcasts or whatever it is. I, I don't even know what it is. Uh, I don't go there. But I mocked those complaints from people with butch Twitter handles like Eagle Patriot Minuteman throwing another couple of Eagles 47, guys ready to pledge their life, their fortune and their sacred honour, but for God's sake, don't ask me to make another couple of clicks. I ain't doing that. I'd be interested to know what revolution has ever succeeded on that level of commitment. Convenient revolutionaries. In the last week, we've heard about all the big shots getting lifetime bans from Twitter, from the president to General Flynn. But all kinds of non-famous people are also getting vaporized, to use George Orwell's term from our current tale for our time, 1984, which airs nightly at this website. For the last few months, I've had a zillion tweets saying, why aren't you on Palestine, you gutless pansy sellout? Well, I know a couple of the founders of Parler, Rebecca Mercer, who's bankrolling it, and Dan Bongino, who's a big shareholder, and I like both of them, and good luck to them. We looked into the terms and conditions, and they struck me, having some experience in, more experience than I'd want in American civil litigation, as rather onerous. Uh, you have to upload your driver's license to Parler, for example. But everyone else seemed to like Parler. And last week, after threatening to quit Twitter and Facebook for months, Mark Levin reacted to the lifetime ban of the president by saying, OK, I'm done. I'm off Twitter, off Facebook. Come and join me on Parler. And uh, 48 hours later, Parler was gone because it turns out that after marketing itself as a form of escape from the woke billionaires... It's dependent, utterly dependent, on Apple, Google Play and Amazon's uh, servers. Uh, for example, all those driver's licenses and other info that you gave to Parler are now in the database of Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Uh, so instead of having to delete Mark Levin and co. one by one, the woke cartel just persuaded them all to move to Parler and then deleted them en masse. So the great escape from the woke Starpo turns out to be just like the great escape the movie, uh, if you recall the finale, when they're all herded into a clearing for a smoke 
and a convivial chat, all the uh, Brits and Americans, and then they're all machine-gunned on mass. Tonight, old man, you did it! You did it! You did it! You said that you would do it, and indeed you did! For the last few weeks on Rush, I've been making snide cracks about Cumulus Radio, which owns a lot of stations in America, and whose senior executive wanker said that anybody who brought up election fraud would be terminated immediately, which may be why so many of your favorite rock-ribbed conservative hosts have gone silent on the subject. So here's a fascinating piece from Time magazine, a fascinating piece from Time magazine. I don't believe I've used that expression since uh, March 1974. Uh, The fascinating piece from Time magazine is called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. Hmm, what's that about? Sample quote. The handshake between the business lobby and organized labor was just one component of a vast cross-partisan campaign to protect the election, an extraordinary shadow effort dedicated not to winning the vote, but to ensuring it would be free and fair, credible and uncorrupted. For more than a year, a loosely organized coalition of operatives scrambled to shore up America's institutions as they came under simultaneous attack from a remorseless pandemic and an autocratically inclined president. Unquote. Time magazine. Okay, so a quote coalition of quote operatives, quote, scrambled to shore up America's institutions to quote, protect the election. But I I thought American elections were run by county election officials. Who are these scrambling operatives shoring up institutions? Further quote, the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream, a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election, they were fortifying it, unquote. Aha, they were not rigging the election, they were fortifying it. So that's okay then. Time magazine. Will that cumulus wanker let his radio hosts talk about this fascinating Time magazine piece about fortifying the election? Filling in for Rush Limbaugh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Stein. Yes, indeed. America's anchor man is away. And America's your- anchor man is away as I have said at the start of all these guest hosting stints for 15 years now. America's Anchorman is away, playing among the stars on that great radio set in the sky for all eternity. One final word on Rush, whom I admired and adored and in whose debt I shall forever be. Rush never wanted to do a final show, never wanted to retire. Even as his cancer advanced, All he wanted 
was to be here for tomorrow's show, or if not the day after tomorrow's, or next week's, even as his wretched, broken body refused to cooperate. And so in his last months, he would often have a guest host standing by in the studio, ready to take over in case his great voice faltered 40 minutes or an hour and a half into the three-hour show. And it fell to me to be on standby for the last two shows of Rush's life. I was happy to do it. I would have gone on doing it for as long as he wanted. And if you're worried about having to take over at a minute's notice, you listen more intently and you get to know the telltale signs. And at six minutes past midday Eastern time on that last day, I had the hint of weakness in his vocal timber. And then, as always... He somehow willed his frail and shrunken form to rouse itself and power through for the next three hours so that nobody listening, none of the listening millions, noticed a thing. And at the very end of the show, he chose to thank me for standing by for three hours, and so I feel slightly embarrassed that a glorious third-of-a-century run came to an end not with any of Rush's big thoughts or unique insights of which there had been so many over the decades, why Rush makes the big bucks, uh, as another fallen comrade, Kathy Shadle, always liked to put it. Uh, instead, for his sign-off of the last show, there were no grand thoughts, and instead his final words on air were, Thank you again, Mr. Stein. We'll be back soon. The second part was not to be and the first part was not necessary. But many people in the last week have pointed out to me those last words of Rush, including some commenters here. It was not by design, it was the roll of the dice, and I feel a little sheepish about it. But today we shall take our leave as Rush took his leave. Mark Stein, thank you again, Mr. Stein, for standing by today. We'll be back soon. No. Thank you. You, Rush, for everything. So I'm introducing a new featurette about Chinese penetration of the West. The idea being that we'll focus on Chinese penetration of politicians such as uh, the entire Biden family and Dianne Feinstein, and also of critical societal uh, institutions such as Oxford and Cambridge and other prominent universities high on Chai Com money. But here we are, the very first day of our new featurette, and Chinese penetration is literal. The BBC, CNN, The Washington Post and other media outlets are reporting that American diplomatic staff in China are being forced to undergo the new anal swab COVID test that Beijing says is far more effective than the nasal swab. Can't you just see Doc Fauci uh, saying that in another week or two? Oh, and that Professor pants down at Imperial College in London, too. The U.S. State Department has complained to the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that this is inconsistent with the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. Uh, I'm not sure that that's strictly true. I've given it the quick once over and the Vienna Convention is silent on whether the host country has the right to stick stuff up the ambassador's butt, uh, but it doesn't explicitly rule it out. The Chinese, for their part, are denying 
that they're making U.S. diplomats drop their BVDs. And Beijing has denied on Thursday asking U.S. diplomats to take anal swab tests for COVID-19. U.S. media outlet Vice earlier cited a State Department official as saying the test was given in error. Hmm. So as you heard there, Washington is now taking the position. <laughs> uh, actually, I should I should just leave it at that. Washington is now taking the position. Assume the position, as Rush liked to say. <laughs> don't, don't worry, I'll. I'll uh... I'll get through this. As you heard there, Washington is now taking the position that China administered these anal swabs, quote, in error. Could happen to anyone. Oh, sorry, I meant to give you the nasal swab. Anal swabs require inserting a cotton swab three to five centimeters or 1.2 to two inches into the anus and gently rotating it. I love the way Dorcas says gently rotating. Oh, like wind chimes that are therapeutic massage. I'm trying to not make too much of the awesome symbolic power uh, of this unexpected development a mere one month into the new Washington-Beijing relationship. I'm trying not to make too much of its awesome symbolic power, but I'm pretty much failing. Anyway, enough of the American diplomatic corps assuming the position. I think I need a palate cleanser after that news story. This is... uh, such a tender ballad. Shoot. Anal swab, anal swab. Every morning you're up me. Do your job one. Slight throb. Who's the lucky guy? Yup! Me. This comes after several Japanese employees in Beijing rebuked China's carrying out anal swabs test, which they consider a violation of their human rights and dignity. Sayonara. That's. I thought you said you'd be getting another jar of Vaseline in Japanese. Ah, so. That's us. Oh, in Japanese. Japanese citizens say the mandatory anal swabs cause them some psychological pain. The Chinese response is that they only stick it up there two inches and then give it a twist, which is basically what Beijing's been doing to the planet this last year. God, we might as well go all in and order up the new idents. It's the Mark Stein Show, anal swab watch. Come on, everybody. Drop your pants. Yeah, you're looking good. I'm gonna sing my song. It won't take long. We do the anal swab till it makes you sob. Come on, let's twist again. Like we did last Thursday. Yeah, let's twist again. Like we did last week. Do you remember when things were really throbbing? Hey, let's twist again. Let me hear you shriek. Ow! A well around and around and up and up we go again. Oh baby, let me hear you say awesome again. Come on, let's twist again. Like we did last Thursday. I'll see you again. Same time next week. 
thanks you, Chairman Xi, from the heart of our bottoms. You know, even in a decaying Christendom, there is something so heartening about Sunday service on Easter morn with the church pews packed as they rarely are. And oh, wait, no, sorry, that my mistake. That was the old Easter before the state rolled the stone in front of the church door. So the hosannas were decidedly muted yesterday. Singing remains forbidden in California churches. In Spain, they've taken the additional precaution of banning hymnals. In Greece, they've banned loudspeakers, just in case you're tempted to hold an outdoor service. But really, why not just cut to the chase? In Ireland, all in-person services are illegal. And like Father Hughes in Mullahoran, who said mass to 40 congregants, you'll get a 500 euro fine if you're minded to try it. And Pastor Cronin, at the Abundant Grace Church in Dublin was arrested mid-service. In one of posterity's little jests, an Irish Catholic is currently only free to practice his religion if he heads north across the border where under the tyrannous British Protestant yoke, the churches are open, unlike down south. However, don't get carried away what the state giveth, the state can take away. Here's British coppers in South London seizing the pulpit and closing down worship in mid-service. It is Good Friday and I appreciate you would like to worship that this gathering is unlawful, so please may you leave the building now. What's the proper response to that? Here's Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky in Calgary, Alberta. Please get out. Get out of this property immediately. Get out. Okay. Get out of this property okay. immediately. Out. I don't want to hear anything. Out of this property I immediately. Don't I don't want to hear a word. Out. Out. Out of this property immediately until you come back with a warrant. He called them Nazis and the Gestapo. Preach it, preacher man. And through the sheer power of his words, he drove the coppers down the stairs like Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. For it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer and ye are not going to make it a den of totalitarian goons. The only people committing a crime there were Her Majesty's miserable and unworthy Calgary Constabulary who were in breach of Section 176 of the Canadian Criminal Code. Quote, everyone who willfully disturbs or interrupts an assemblage of persons met for religious worship is guilty of an offence punishable on summary conviction. That's a slam dunk. And that Canadian pastor should file a complaint with, uh, oh, the police. There is a tragic element to the diminished state of the Christian churches a year into this thing. If ever there were a huge opportunity for religious ministry, a world in which everything else is dead, movies, shows, sports, concerts, restaurants, all the noisy distractions of the secular consumerist life is surely it. Yet for the most part, Starting with the social justice pontiff in the Vatican blaming COVID on climate change, the churches blew it. And saddest of all, an unchurched year has seen church membership in the U.S. fall for the first time below 50% of Americans. Which is a pity, because when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. So the best way to get something done, if you, if you hold near and dear to you that you... Uh like to be able to anyway okay um hang on uh sorry oh acting 
see you lying down for an afternoon nap after eating tapioca from a tray on your lap. Sundown and you better take care if you find yourself climbing on an airplane stair. Sundown and you better take care if you find yourself climbing on an airplane stair. Joe Biden. Joe? Give me a hand, Joe. Give, give me a shoe, Joe. Give me the nuclear football, Joe. Oh, never mind. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. Buckingham Palace has announced that His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh died in the early hours of the morning, just a few weeks before his 100th birthday. There will be many of the Queen's subjects who will believe that he did not make his century because of the vile conduct of his wretched grandson, and the in-law from hell, and I would not disagree with that. God rock both of them. His Royal Highness was the Queen's consort. That's an ill-defined role prone to an accumulation of frustrations. For Americans, think First Lady or Vice President for life. Prince Philip did it longer than anyone in the history of the Royal Family since the day in 1952 when he and Princess Elizabeth were at treetops in Kenya and received the news that George VI had died. Harry Truman was in the White House, Stalin was in the Kremlin, some fella called Mao had just taken over in China. That's a long time. Still in all, he's kept the show on the road in an age hostile to the monarchical principle and one which has seen the crowns of almost all his cousins come tumbling down throughout Europe. I chanced to dine at Buckingham Palace on the eve of the Australian referendum on whether to become a republic. We discussed the European Union, and all I can say without betraying confidences is that the Brexit result would not have dismayed those of us around the table. Initially, I was unsure of how forcefully to disagree with His Highness, but the Honourable Sir Angus Ogilvie sitting next to me kept goading me sotto voce. Go on, he enjoys it. He did. As Diana Mosley said to me many years ago of the Duchess of Windsor, he always returned the ball. As a Canadian, I was somewhat distracted by the referendum down under, which I kept trying to slip into the conversation. But the Duke was inscrutable on that front, or perhaps, as I now think of it, quietly confident about victory. The Romanovs, the Habsburgs, the Hohenzollerns and his family's own throne in Greece were long gone. But the House of Windsor endures, thanks in part to his sharp stewardship. The young queen was shy and unconfident. He was shrewd, witty, widely read and stoic about the accumulated frustrations of a manly man stuck as permanent second banana. There were a half dozen or so of us at dinner that night, an earl, a viscount, a baron, a knight, plus a plain old Canadian mister. All are now gone. 
Sarah Angus, Alexandra's hubby, Viscount Younger, former Defence Secretary, the Earl of Carnarvon, known to viewers of the Crown as Porchy, the Queen's racing manager, Lord Blake, the great historian of the Tory party, to whom I was presented by the Duke with the minimalist introduction, Mr. Steinwright, do you read? Lord Blake averred that he did. I'd assumed upon acceptance of my invitation that we guests would be there as unpaid jesters to amuse our royal host. But in fact, HRH was a quick-witted chap. We were hard put to keep up with him, and I would have to say he had the best lines of the night. One of my fellow diners, bemoaning the lack of agricultural workers in Britain, explained that his farm now brought in young Australians and South Africans who were able to make 90 to 100 quid a day picking onions. Crying all the way to the bank, murmured the Duke, channeling Liberace. I thought that was a rather good line. Professional level indeed. Richard Barnett, a 60-year-old man from Arkansas, is the guy who on January the 6th was photographed with his foot on Nancy Pelosi's desk. For that shocking crime, uh, the worst attack on quote-unquote our democracy since the burning of the White House, uh, Mr. Barnett was held in jail for almost four months because U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howe denied him bail on the grounds that he was, quote, brazen and, quote, cloaked with entitlement, which are apparently federal crimes now. A couple of weeks ago, the characteristically crap jurist uh, conceded she'd got the law wrong and released Mr. Barnett pending trial. So he's already served three and a half months for putting his foot on Nancy Pelosi's desk. That's about three weeks per toe. And he's now under pressure to cop a plea under which he would uh, serve seven years in prison. Seven years. That's one year and five months for every toe he placed on Nancy Pelosi's desk. Take it or leave it. If he doesn't like that, they'll throw the book at him. Don't wave that constitution at me. Get real. We're in a post-constitutional order here, just as Robert Mugabe had Zimbabweans arrested for making jokes about his Chinese-made rubber penis. So America now punishes Les Majeste, or brazen entitlement, as Judge Beryl Howell would have it. Meanwhile, the guys who attempted to subvert the 2016 election, uh, that was an actual attack on quote-unquote our democracy, uh, the guys who attempted to subvert that election are all still walking around pending the Durham report. Oh, sorry, I didn't say that right. The Durham report! The Durham report! The Durham report! Don't, don't, 
Investigation hit its second anniversary a couple of days ago. The team celebrated with a quiet dinner at their beach house in Tahiti. As regular listeners will be aware, our segment on Chinese penetration of the West honors Eric Shagdwell, the California congressman and former presidential candidate who turned his back on the obvious and found himself penetrated by Beijing Honey Trap, Fang Fang. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese Penetration of the Day. But deep Chinese penetration is not confined to pliable, biddable politicians. Do you know the name John Cena? He was a badass wrestler. And then as the years took their toll, he became a good enough actor to get himself small roles in crappy action flicks. And by crap, I mean Fast and Furious 37. Um, Anyway, he was out and about promoting Fast and Furious 52. And he was asked where the movie was opening first. And he said the first country it's opening in is Taiwan. Chairman Xi was furious And because Hollywood actors know who their boss is these days, John Cena issued an apology in Chinese. Do you like the Fast and Furious films? A lot of so-called conservative guys do. Because they're just good old all-American action, not like these drippy chick flicks or boring Oscar bait with a lot of Brit twits in them. But there's nothing in the least bit American about Fast and Furious. They're made for young Asian men watching in the vast multiplexes of Wuhan and similar burgs. And the guys who've grown rich appearing in this crap know that. The French used to refer sneeringly to so-called globalization as Americanization because all this third-rate rubbish was so offensively American to the French. It turns out the Chinese Chinese are more sophisticated than the French. They knew ultimately that globalization would mean signification. As this supposed American icon doing the full kowtow to the Chicoms has just demonstrated, John Cena is as thoroughly penetrated as Eric Shagwell. Don't be a sap. Don't be a rube. There's nothing American about this lousy hack franchise. Uh, So if you support Fast and Furious, you're just making the eclipse of America even faster and more furious. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. It could be that great chalk and biscuit coating. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. It could be that smooth toffee ice cream in the center. Or that whole delicious golden gay time taste. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. Treats Golden Daytime, now available in smooth chocolate, mouth-watering mint, and scrumptious strawberry. 
Actually, it's not that hard to have a gay time on your own. I did it myself about 15 years ago in Australia. Uh, I was out for a stroll before uh, doing my turn at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and had a sudden impulse for an ice cream and decided to go for a golden gay time. That's ice cream dipped in chocolate and uh, coated with honeycomb biscuit. I had the mint flavour. Very nice. Did the trick. It's really super easy to have a gay time on your own. Or it was until a censorious member of the LGBT QWERTY community decided to accuse the golden gay time ice cream manufacturer of orientational appropriation. Streets ice cream, famous ice cream that's been around since the 1930s, of golden gay time because of its potential offence to LGBTIQ plus communities. Brian, put simply, uh, what is straight out offensive to you about the term gay, golden gay time? Well, I just feel that at this day and age, the gay is a sexual orientation and it's double meaning. Um, being joyous or happy is an outdated meaning. I've had to go through a lot uh, to find my sexuality, to be a proud gay man. Um, I've gone through many parts of my life, as I say in my petition. Um, I just feel that historical brands you know, obviously exist within the country, as you've said. Redskins and a few other examples um, have, have upsetted their names. Um, I just feel that it's time that golden gay time follows. Many words in English have two meanings. A case is, on the one hand, uh, something that uh, climate huckster Michael E. Mann brings against you to ruin your life. But on the other, it's also a unit for bulk buying beer to ameliorate the effects of Michael E. Mann ruining your life. But in this case, uh, Brian is saying this particular word cannot share two meanings because it's exclusively his. The Australian gay community insists on having a gay time on its own. That's identity politics for you. No possibility whatsoever of a shared golden gay time. We're all in golden ghettos. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide totally non-orientationally appropriating. I do think character is more important than than people uh, have been uh, giving it uh, consideration, really, since the Clinton era. The Clinton era was, you know, who cares if he's destroyed Monica Lewinsky's life? I mean, she's never recovered from getting down on her knees, getting out the old presidential knee pads. That's she's, you know someone who's now a middle-aged woman and has never made anything of her life, in part because of the way uh, Clinton used her, like, used toilet tissue. And I do think it's actually important, it's more interesting to look at how people live than what they say. And if you look at how Boris lives, he's someone who just blunders through life, damaging you know, a lot of very small... I'm thinking of, you know, people like his secretary at The Spectator. He damages... There's a lot of damaged people in his wake. Then you have people um, like Biden. People 
live in public so that when somebody is 78 or whatever Biden is now, there's no, you know, you shouldn't really pay any attention to what he says. You should look at how he lives. And he lives better than anyone should be able to live when he's been in public service uh, for half a century. So that tells you that Biden is a crook. He's, a, he's been bought and paid for. Now, whether he's been bought and paid for by whatever they are, the credit card companies based in Delaware, or whether he's been bought and paid for by the Chinese Politburo, he's on the take. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and grey have you got half a million bucks to spare for a painting to go over your mantelpiece? Well, there are bargains galore to be had out there. This recently discovered 16th century portrait of the longest reigning Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, recently sold for just under 500 grand at Sotheby's in London. That guy certainly knows how to do noses. Or for half a mil, you could have picked up this Lorenzo di Bici painting, 14th century Italian master of St. Catherine of Alexandria with the six virtues and Christ the Redeemer above. Uh, if your tastes incline elsewhere, uh, for 500 Gs, you could have got this Degas or this Renoir or this Picasso, but you're probably thinking, look, for half a million greenbacks, I don't want some lousy Picasso or some post-impressionist gal with her dress sliding off her bosom or some downer old master dude hung up on saints. I'm looking for a real bang for my buck. Ladies and gentlemen, for a mere $500,000, you can now buy a genuine, wait for it, a genuine Hunter Biden. If you're wondering what that is, it's the surviving strip of Hunter's tie-dye shirt from his seventh birthday party in 1977, next to some Valvoline 10W30 he huffed out of his rental car and blew through his art pipe. Yes, usually you have to be dead to fetch half a million, but Hunter's not dead, he's just sleeping it off. He's only been a professional painter since, oh, let me see now, uh, around about lunchtime on January the 20th. The art critic Martin Galindo reacted to this masterpiece by saying, oh my God, that looks like COVID. He's not wrong. Here's the coronavirus. And here's Hunter's version, the coronavirus stuck on the end of his crack pipe. But Hunter's COVID painting is an art world super spreader infecting everyone inside. Do you remember a couple of years back when impressionable Kazakh oligarchs and Saudi princes were mysteriously eager to pay the Clinton Foundation two million bucks for a speech by Chelsea on diarrhea in Africa? Well, Hunter's half-million-dollar coronascape is the Clinton Foundation diarrhea speech of contemporary art. Do you have a Holbein, a Rubens, a Gainsborough, a Monet? Sell them all. Matter of fact, don't bother selling them. Give them to your undocumented nanny. She'll be able to get a couple of bucks for the frame. But I could have told you, Vincent. And you, Hunter. This world was never meant for one as beautiful. Gary Sinise. Uh, I can't think of any other character from a movie that became a band. There's, there's no uh, Scarlett O'Hara band, there's no Mary Poppins band, but there is a Lieutenant Dan band. And somehow, I take it presumably by accident, a character you played in a movie connected with 
millions of real veterans as somehow getting to the heart of what it is uh, to serve and to suffer in a war that ends ambiguously or ends in defeat, and yet there is still nobility and glory in having served your country? Well, Mark, I, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Grateful American, how I got into all this with our military. And it starts with the family members in my, in my family, World War I, World War II, Korea era, uh, Vietnam. A lot of veterans in my family. I uh, ended up playing the Vietnam veteran in Forrest Gump. And, and uh, at that time, uh, I had done very little. I just hadn't, uh, hadn't worked in the movie or television business uh, for very long at all. When I started going out and visiting troops around the world and going to the hospitals, uh, most of them didn't know who I was, but they knew Lieutenant Dan. They knew, knew my mm -hmm. face from the movie. So when I started taking the band with me on these tours, I just said, let's call it Gary Sinise, Lieutenant Dan Band. They'll at least know uh, that uh, the guy who played the character is coming to see him. Let me let me just ask you finally, uh, Gary, what, uh, as I said, these are weird times when a national holiday becomes controversial. You've played a lot on July the 4th. You played a lot on Memorial Day. What does Independence Day mean to you personally? Well, it's har hardly controversial uh, to me. I mean, it, uh, it's about freedom. And uh, I, having gone to places around the world, the war zones of Afghanistan, Iraq, places like that, where they don't really understand what freedom is. Uh, I've stood on the border between North and South Korea several times. Uh, they're free in the South and enslaved enslaved in the North. You value your freedom that much more and you value the people that provide it for you. And that's the men and the women of the United States military. That's why I started my foundation. I want to support them in every way I can because freedom is precious and uh, it has to be fought for. It has to be protected. Uh, independence from uh, tyranny has to be fought for and protected. And I, I thank God for the men and women who are willing to do that. And I just want to help them out. Well, God bless you, Gary, and God bless the USA. You've done great work for the next 10 years, and I'm sure there are moments when you'd much rather be uh, on a soundstage or uh, in a theater, but you do this work. You are a great actor and a great patriot, and that combination doesn't always go together as often as it should. Thank you so much this Independence Day weekend, Gary Sinise. God bless To reprise a line from a decade-old column of mine, quote, Afghanistan is about Afghanistan, if you're Afghan or Pakistani, but if you're Russian or Chinese or Iranian or European, Afghanistan is about America. That's the point to remember. If you're an Afghan schoolgirl, today is the fall of Kabul. Elsewhere, in the chancelleries of allies and enemies alike, it's the fall of America. Even by their usual wretched standards, the world's most somnolent media are struggling to stay up to speed on the story. Here's the scoop from USA Today. Quote, Taliban's Afghanistan advance tests Biden's America is back foreign policy promise. 
You don't say. Did he misread the prompter? Or mishear the guy in his ear? America is on its back, surely. But don't worry, the world's most lavishly overfunded intelligence community is on the case. Quote, Kabul could fall to the Taliban within 90 days, U.S. intelligence warns. Thank you, geniuses. That was Thursday. So it turned out to be well within 90 hours, which is close enough for U.S. intelligence work. Was this the same 17 intelligence agencies who all agreed Russia had meddled in the 2016 election and with whose collective intelligence only a fool would disagree? To modify Hillary Clinton, what difference at this point would it make if the U.S. government simply laid off its entire intelligence community. The scale of America's global humiliation is so total that I see my friends at Fox News cannot even bear to cover it. As I speak, every other world network, the BBC, Deutsche Welle, France 24, not to mention the Chinese, is broadcasting the collapse of the American regime in real time. On Fox, meanwhile, They're talking about the spending bill and the third COVID shot and the dead Haitians as if the totality of the defeat is such that for once it cannot be fixed into the American right's usual consolations. Well, this positions us pretty nicely for 2022. But don't for a moment think this is just some rushed, bungled, memo-incinerating abandonment of the U.S. Embassy. State Department diplomats have been preparing this move all summer under cover of a highly sophisticated deflection operation at the embassy in which they appeared cleverly to be prioritising Pride Month in Kabul. I do hope they've managed to evacuate the embassy's LGBT QWERTY flag before the sacking commences. One of the depressing aspects of the swamp is that everything becomes a racket, including even your armed forces. Look at that buffoon, the guy who heads the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Thoroughly Modern Milley. That's an awful lot of chest ribbonry for a nation that hasn't won a war in three quarters of a century. During his recent wokier-than-thou congressional testimony on white rage... I wish someone would have asked Thoroughly Modern what they were all for. Well, uh, this is for Korea, uh, Vietnam. This small ribbon's for the Jimmy Carter helicopters in the desert fiasco because that went tits up far quicker than it usually takes. Uh, Here's the Pentagon Female Empowerment Award I got for introducing Take Your Child Bride to Work Day to Jalalabad. This one's from the Association of Non-Binary Staff Colleges for most transitions in a single battalion. Oh, and this most recent one is for getting into a Twitter spat over Tucker Carlson. If you don't have total contempt for Millie and the rest of the brass right now, you're part of the problem. America is not too big to fail. It's failing by almost every metric right now. The world record brokey brokey brokenness manifested by the current spending bills is only possible because the US dollar is the global currency. When that ends, we're Weimar with smartphones. Clearly, Chairman Xi and his allies occasionally muse on the best moment to yank the dollar out from under. If you were in Beijing watching telly today, would you perhaps be considering advancing those plans?
General Thoroughly Modern Millie has just awarded himself the Silver Star for Best Congressional Testimony. All together now. There are those, I suppose, that think they're mad. Heaven knows the world has gone to rack and to ruin. What we once thought odd and Sodom and immorable, they now invoke as woke and quite adorable. But the fact is every general now is thoroughly modern. Intersectionality, every general now is anxious to trend. No need for reality, just screw the mission and transition instead. You raised your pride flag right up that pole before you fled. I'm the chiefs of staff, the world is so cozy. If it seems they cage you just because they blew another big war. Don't be so white rage here, so long. Straight shooting guy, he's wokier than thou. So beat the drums, cause here comes the really modern millionaire. Central Command submitted a variety of plans that were briefed and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. These plans were coordinated, synchronized, and rehearsed. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days. Every general now is thoroughly modern. Lobbyists are floodier. Every general now is letting it fly. LGBT quotia, oh do stop sniggering, you're triggering them. He's due at West Point to teach systemic racism. He don't need no book by General Clausewitz. Way too dialectical, Ibram X Kendi in every kit bag. Won't rest till he's wrecked it all. White rage is all the rage, he's on it and how. So beat the drums, cause here comes thoroughly modern For most of the last two decades, we have observed the anniversary of 9-11 by reposting my columns from the first few days of the new era. We ceased to do so after September 11th, 2017, when, self-quote, a president who on the campaign trail mocked his predecessor's inability to use the words radical Islam himself issued all mention of the I-word. And a defence secretary laughably hyped as Mad Dog Mattis turned out to be just another dribbler from the Washington generals and retreated to the madrasa wing of the Pentagon to explain that it was all just a theological misunderstanding. We shall not resume our anniversary observances today. The war is lost at home and abroad. On the domestic front, we doubled the rate of Muslim immigration to the West and began assimilating ourselves with Islam's strictures on freedom of expression and the like. The decade and a half since the Danish Mohammed cartoons has been one long remorseless surrender on core Western liberties. When a schoolteacher gets beheaded in the street, there is no outrage at the act, just a mild regret 
that he should have been foolish enough to provoke his own fate. Even the milder jests from the immediate post-9-11 era, the cartoon of the woman trying on new burkas in the changing room and wondering, does my bomb look big in this, would not be published today. In the broader society, our rulers quickly determined that it was easier to punish us than our enemies. The post-9-11 security state surely helped soften up Western populations for the CHICOM-19 lockdowns, in which entire nations have been reduced to TSA-administered airports. As for the war overseas, it ended with a military that can do everything except win – handing the keys to Afghanistan back to the guys who pulled off 9-11 and apologising for the two-decade inconvenience by gifting the Mullahs with some of the most expensive infrastructure on the planet, plus an air force, approximately five assault rifles for every Taliban fighter and express check-in for the 47% of the Afghan population that apparently served as U.S. translators. The position of the United States is far weaker than it was 20 years ago. Around the planet, the assumption of friends and enemies alike is that the American moment is over and the future belongs elsewhere. They are making their dispositions accordingly. It is not a question of wishing the post-American world, but of accepting the known facts. There are honourable ways to lose a war. This was not one of them. We have dishonoured the dead of 9-11 and insulted their sacrifice. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage And you'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass It's the American way uh, Have you seen all the network news reports about Afghan sex crimes in America? No? Oh, you do surprise me. Well, the bazillions of Afghan translators... Uh, translating is to Afghans as content farming is to Macedonians. Uh, it's about 87% of the Afghan economy. It's what uh, Pushtuns call the translation industrial complex. They got the idea from the Pentagon. Well, the bazillions of Afghan translators have barely touched down and they're already touching you up. So we have a brand new feature for you. The Mark Stein Show presents... Your Afghan Translator of the Week. Standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. Yes, I'm standing on the corner hearing all the girls I grow. Brother, you don't know a nicer occupation. Much better than Jalalabad. I'm standing on the corner picking out my next Picking up my next, picking up my next child bride. I'm sorry I don't do rhymes. Mullah Omar says rhymes are for infidels. Saturday, I was so broke. Hadn't got a goat and that's no joke. So I cruise on down to Gaza Inc. Where I hover C-17 and I survey the horror awaiting when I land. Because I'm standing on the corner watching all the boys go by. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I meant to say I'm standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. 
rather if you'd like a babe out of her burka, get on a plane, come to Fort Bragg, and you'll be standing on the corner, dragging all the girls, dragging all the girls, dragging all the girls into the shrubbery. Look, I am an official accredited translator. You want to let me say I go jiggy jig on top of you in cash now? Come with me now. We may have to get Hakim in to do a second take on that one. As is to be expected from the laughingstock superpower, the small number of actual U.S. translators in Afghanistan all appear uh, to have been left behind to receive uh, for the rest of their lives spam texts from the State Department telling them to take three copies of the pink form to the nearest U.S. consulate, which is, uh, where would that be, Qatar or Lahore? Helsinki. Uh, And instead, America has imported legions of translators who can't speak English, uh, so that when they uh, landed in Virginia, an emergency appeal had to be issued for people willing to serve as translators for the translators. Uh, Part of the confusion arises from the fact that the word translator is, in fact, Pashto for sex fiend. It's not yet a month since America skedaddled out of Hamid Karzai International, but it was a long flight for all our plucky translators, so lots of nominees uh, for your Afghan Translator of the Week. Chinaman, Chinaman, friendly neighbourhood Chinaman, spins a web round the globe while you're calling JK Transphobe. Look out, here comes the Chinaman. China is denying, not very convincingly, that it now has space nukes. Space nukes. But America's crack military is on the case. It's released a video of a new non-racist march in which the female drill sergeant drills her men, all wearing masks in the great outdoors, all wearing their COVID masks. The female drill sergeant drills her men as follows. Remember MLK. Yeah, that's just what an army that can't win any wars needs. I think the British army got here first. Right. Now let's see something decent and military. Some precision drilling. Squad! Camp it! Up! Who get her? Whoops! I've got your number that you couldn't afford me, dear two, three. I'll scratch your eyes out. Don't come the brigadier bit with us, dear. We all know where you've been, you military fairy. We can't win against Afghanis, but we've got the hardest trannies. China has space nukes and is already a presence at America's state-of-the-art abandoned Bagram Air Base. But the U.S. military has its first, quote, transgender four-star officer in American history. Rachel, possibly world history. Rachel Levine, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, has been appointed a four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Court. Wait, wait a minute. Rachel... Levine is 
Transgender? I don't believe that for a moment. Really? Seriously? Well, all I can say is uh, if ever I transition, I want the same doc who did her. That's one for the old trophy wall in his office. Are you you absolutely certain about... Well, you could knock me over with the cervix. I'm stunned. Anyway, Rachel Levine is now a four-star admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps which is apparently one of the eight branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. Eight branches. Uh, The others are, uh, let me see, the Army, the Air Force, the Afghan Translator Liaison Corps, the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed Guantanamo Courthouse Security Force, the SEAL Team 6 Unvaccinated Special Forces Early Retirement Processing Division. I forget the rest. Anyway, just as the U.S. Secretary of Education is the only education minister in the Western world with his own SWAT team, so the U.S. Public Health Service is apparently the only public health bureaucracy with its own navy. So Rachel Levine is now an admiral. China has the largest surface fleet, and thanks to American generosity, the Taliban has the ninth best armed military on the planet. But the United States still leads the world in the length of its motorcades. Joe Biden has arrived in Rome with an 85-car motorcade for a visit to Europe for a climate change summit in which he'll tell you, you need to fly less. 85 cars, every one of which has to be flown in to Rome and then on to Glasgow. Imagine that. Imagine the carbon footprint, not of Joe Biden, but just imagine the carbon footprint of one of his cars. Uh, That's believed to be a world record, 85 cars, because no other world leader has wanted to look that big an ass. And if he did, it's much quicker to walk around with a neon sign on your head saying world's biggest wanker. 85 cars. I'm old enough to remember when uh, Barack Obama made do with 40 cars and the first George Bush made do with 25, and I made jokes about it then. If you've got a car front and back, there's a sporting chance you've got half a dozen guys who'll take a bullet for you. If you've got 85 cars, they're overpaid tosspots on a junket looking forward to the... Quote, Cartagena hookers, a phrase the U.S. Secret Service planted in the English language. New video today taken Wednesday about 3.30 in the afternoon. Look at the entrance to the Louis Vuitton store at Oak Brook Center. A crew of criminals, 14 suspects, according to police, working together in the store and driving away in three vehicles. Once they entered the store, uh, they pulled out their, the garbage bags from, the, from their uh, coats and, and started uh, filling uh, filling them with merchandise. This is why it's interesting to see whether it actually does change the mind of all those uh, American liberals who think this is just about being being nice to people. It's now coming to their part of town. It's coming to the Magnificent Mile in Chicago. It's coming to quite, you know, fancy chain stores like Louis Vuitton. So it's it's coming to where they live. And it's happening in broad daylight. So some of these nice NPR listening women, liberals, might actually be in the Louis Vuitton store when the mob arrives and cleans it out. And that item that you picked out, was just perfect, just right for you, matches everything. Uh, you picked it out just two minutes ago. As they're scramming, they might just rip it out of your hand, too. And so this is the question. Uh, this, is, this, is where, this is where the virtue-signaling illusions 
uh, run up against the ugly reality of how these Democrat administrations have destroyed these cities. I love it. How do you pronounce that? Louis who? Louis Vuitton. Vuitton. <laughs> Louis Vuitton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't blame me. I can say regular. I, I said... Uh, on a uh, on a uh, seasonal show many years ago, I said I asked Martha Stewart about her recipe for pecan pie, and she said it's pecan. So <laughs> I, I, I have. Uh, I have uh, relatively down market pronunciation compared to some of those uh, hoity-toity American types like Martha. Yeah, and you know what? And Rodeo Drive, by the way, has been one of the places hit too. Can you imagine smashing, grabbing on Rodeo Drive? Well, I think I think that's what's interesting. I was I was talking with Rudy uh, Giuliani uh, a week or so back, uh, and we were talking about the way it was in New York before he became mayor. And I said, well, you know, we, we knew you didn't go down this alley and you didn't go that park after sundown or whatever. But now you're having people being sucker punched uh, in midtown Manhattan on some of the fanciest uh, streets in the world. Fifth Avenue and uh, Madison Avenue. Uh, people, uh, little old ladies getting sucker punched in the middle of the day. People getting shoved in front of the of subway trains. The and and Jen Psaki says this is all down to COVID. These right, are symptoms. it's COVID. Yeah, if if you have the urge to sucker punch a grandma on uh, Fifth Avenue uh, just uh, out by Rockefeller Center, you may be coming down with the Omicron vi- variant. You should probably uh, get your booster shot if you feel the urge to push someone in front of a subway train. Jen Psaki's thing is that these are just uh, symptoms of COVID. I love it. Now, Claire McCaskill over on PMSNBC uh, yesterday said that Republican-controlled states are soon going to implement vigilantism laws. We're going we're gonna to combat immigration by having the regular, everyday, average citizens start rounding up people who look like they could be foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I take that. That's about me, I take it. I, uh, I was about to say. Um, I, uh, I, I love this. Claire, Claire McCaskill is from Missouri, so she just sounds like she's from Martha's Vineyard or Malibu or whatever. But I actually, uh, this is the whole dem. I, I can't understand sometimes when the myth is so far away from reality that uh, America is just just full of these stump-toothed uh, crackers <laughs> who are uh, in between a jigger of moonshine and a bunk up with their cousin just can't wait to get out there and uh, and and smack down some foreigner. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. What a week. What a week. If you believe the drivel coming out of COP26, or the G26, as Joe Biden calls it, Boris Johnson is very concerned about rising sea levels washing away the Maldives in the year 2200. He's not, last time I checked, the Prime Minister of the Maldives. He's purportedly the Prime Minister of an entirely different island nation, and he has not the slightest interest in the tide washing up on English shores right now. That's why Boris is off in Glasgow saving the planet. Because saving the planet is easier. It's the soft option. Why you would want lessons in saving the planet from a guy who lives on an island and can't control his borders at a time of global pandemic is beyond me. But if you ask the political class, 
about enforcing the national frontier. They'll say, oh, it's all very difficult, old boy. Lots of complicating factors, entirely unreasonable to expect us to do anything about it. But recalibrating the global climate, changing the very heavens, that we can do. Saving the planet is where politicians go to preen and posture because they're useless about the things that are their actual responsibility, like saving your country, saving your county, saving your town. COP26 is being held in Glasgow, which has the lowest male life expectancy in Western Europe. All these prime ministers and celebrities yakking it up at just two miles from Calton, whereas the WHO pointed out a few years back, male life expectancy was 53.9 years, which is a smidgenette higher than the Central African Republic. And in fairness to the Central African Republic, their numbers were depressed for many years by the cannibal Emperor Bokassa having quite an appetite and keeping a well-stocked freezer. But saving Calton lacks the glamour of saving the planet, doesn't it? Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a distinguished scion of uh, America's most illustrious uh, Democrat family. He's the son of a famous senator and nephew of a famous president. Let me ask you a question on the most famous public health bureaucrat in the world, who is the subject of your book, Anthony Fauci. He's basically the J. Edgar Hoover of public health. He's been in the job for half a century. Uh, you're not allowed to say a word against him. You said, I noticed this last year, a couple of weeks after the uh, governments had announced, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. And I think you said on one of the websites you were still able to get on back then, you were talking about Fauci doing gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, with funding from U.S. taxpayers. In other words, essentially, U.S. taxpayers have paid for, for this in their taxes for this monstrosity uh, that, uh, that China has inflicted on the world. Uh, at the, every Everyone just did, nobody looked into it after what you posted last March or April or whatever it was. There's a total lack of curiosity uh, among the somnolent American media, who are admittedly the dullest media on the planet. But what do you what do you make of this total lack of curiosity and their need to crush anybody who who like who comes up with something that is now basically accepted? Fauci did gain of function research with U.S. tax dollars at the Wuhan Institute. Uh, and Fauci, as I show my book, was not alone. The CIA was even a bigger uh, contributor to that gain of function, to those experiments, and the Pentagon through DARPA and Bardo, were, I think they put in $69 million. The CIA put in $34 million through um, USAID. And then Fauci, Fauci was locked into doing it because the... After the 9-11 attacks, we had the anthrax attacks in our country. And the Pentagon used those anthrax attacks, which, by the way, the anthrax, as it turns out, came from the military labs. That's what the FBI said. They right, used it to right. pass the Patriot Act, to invade Iraq, but also to renew what essentially was illegal bioweapons development. 
Bioweapons Treaty in 1969 had a loophole which said if you are doing bioweapons research, which is now illegal, but you're doing it to develop a vaccine, it's legal. It's called dual use. The Pentagon wanted yeah. to resume doing it, but they, they thought they'd look bad, so they funneled $1.6 billion a year to Fauci to do it. And then in 2014, President Obama ordered him to stop. Three of his bugs escaped that year in the United States. 300 leading scientists signed a petition to President Obama saying, please shut down Tony Fauci. He's going to start a, a pandemic and with one of his little superbugs. Yep. So it, Obama ordered him to stop, but he illegally, they passed a moratorium, he illegally continued in the United States, the worst of those experiments. But he moved some of the really bad stuff offshore to Wuhan, where he right. could do it in the sea without the nosy oversight of the White House or these scientists. Here now is a former speechwriter for Mrs. Thatcher and head of the Danube Institute in Budapest, John O'Sullivan. You know, we live in an, an age of madness now. It's not May 1979. The United States is super woke. Um, the uh, Her Majesty's Dominions, the rest of the English-speaking world, is trying to play catch-up with the wokeness. You have fellas like Monsieur Macron who say uh, wokeness is an American disease and we are, it's an existential threat to the French Republic and we're not going to uh, let Les Anglo-Saxons destroy France with its wokeness. And then you get, uh, you move a little further east to Austria and beyond and you find countries that start behaving like conventional nation states in pursuit of their own national interest, such as uh, the one you're sitting in right now, uh, Hungary. So we live in paradoxical times where in the Western world, you seem to get more Western the further East you go. Well, that's perfectly true because the, 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 the people in uh, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, or throughout the whole of Eastern and Central Europe, They've lived under Marxism. They know what communism was like. They recognize the slogans, uh, and then they know what the reality was behind those slogans. And what you find when you're talking to people, both in this part of the world, but also um, um, the people from Hungary and other countries in the West, they say, when we listen to the way the left, the woke intelligentsia, who now infest the major companies, the civil service, almost every aspect of national life in Britain particularly, but also in the United States, when they hear the, the logic, the arguments, the slogans of these people, they say to themselves, you know, that was what we had to put up with between 1945 and 1989. We know the reality. And I would say one th the reason why I'm fundamentally, obviously, much more optimistic than you are, Mark, is because once a country has experienced living under Marxism, they become passionately anti-Marxist. Maybe not permanently because they're replaced by a generation that didn't know this, but they, they are passionately anti-Marxist for a time. I don't 
relish the thought of the people who will follow me because I won't be around to live through the worst of it, but uh, discovering how Marxism really is. But when they discover it, they'll stop being even, they'll, they'll become tremendous conservatives and force conservative parties to begin to behave like conservative parties, which they're not doing at the moment. I agree. That's, that's a fantastic inspirational note on which to end, uh, John. There is light at the tunnel. It's just that Stalin's going to be running the, tu the tunnel for the next four decades or so. But don't worry, we'll get through it. That's a fantastic... <laughs> that's fantastic. But I mean, I'm not sure I will. But on the other hand, I'm optimistic. No, no. No, I'm going to be a very happy 137-year-old. I can't, I can't wait for that. That's, fan, that's fantastic, John. John O'Sullivan from Budapest. Well, there you are. Who says that after 12 months like this, we can't come up with a happy ending, even if it's a few decades off? Happy New Year, and on to 2022. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.